Acts chapter 10, I'm going to talk to the men this morning. We're talking finding a godly man in an ungodly world. Finding a godly man in an ungodly world. Acts chapter 10. Everybody here say hey. All right, the rest of you it's not here. Hope you show up before we leave. Acts chapter 10, verse number 1. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius, verse 4, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? he asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Verse 7. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Last Sunday, I began a series of teachings on godly men. And our scripture text was Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse number 30. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says this, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. See, the scenario was this. The nation of Israel found themselves in trouble. They were on the brink of destruction and disaster, not because of an overwhelming military enemy, because time and time again through the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, have faced an overwhelming military enemy, and yet God supernaturally protects them. God supernaturally protects them. The Bible says, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool, and Jerusalem is the city of the great king. God loves Israel. It's the land of the Bible. And God will protect that nation. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And even in recent history, in 1967, the Six-Day War, June the 5th through the 10th, 1967, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan attacked Israel with overwhelming military might. Three nations backed by Russia with overwhelming military might, but Israel won that war in six days and they captured 8,000 square miles of land of enemy territory. During that war, 15,000 Egyptians, 2,500 Syrians, and 800 Jordanians died compared to only 776 Israelis. And then in 1973, October the 6th, the Yom Kippur War, Egypt and Syria again attacked Israel on Israel's holiest day of the year, the holiday Yom Kippur, 
when the majority of their soldiers, Israel's soldiers, were on leave separating that sacred holiday. On Yom Kippur, everything shuts down. All the stores shut down. All the factories shut down. All the, everything in the city shuts down. And that's when Egypt and Syria attacked them on Yom Kippur. But once again, Israel was able to finally achieve victory in spite of being outnumbered militarily. So over and over again, we see God defending supernaturally the nation of Israel, even when they're up against a greater army. But this time, when Ezekiel's talking, the nation of Israel is on the brink of destruction, not because of an overwhelming military enemy army, but because the people of God had turned their backs on God and turned their backs on His Word. And the Bible says, instead of God getting angry at them, mad at them, kicking them out and destroy them, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 that God sought for a man who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But God said, I couldn't even find one man. Now listen, if God only needs one man to save a nation, He only needs one godly dad to save a family. Okay? If he only needs one man to save a nation, he only needs one godly dad to save a family. So we're talking about finding a godly man in an ungodly world. Last week I shared this with you, that more than 20 million children live in a home without the physical presence of a father. In America, more than 20 million children in America. Millions more have dads who are physically present, but emotionally absent. If it were a disease, fatherlessness would be an epidemic worthy of attention as a national emergency. This is a statement by the National Center for Fathering. Now, I'm reluctant. Last week, I shared a bunch of statistics with you, and I could share that many more and a host of others about how difficult and the the scenario that takes place, the difficult scenario that takes place when children are raised without a father in the home. And I'm just reluctant to keep sharing those because we have so many dynamic, wonderful single moms who are pulling that rope all by themselves and they're doing just a bang-up job. They're Amanda nice heroes. These moms are working, getting their kids to school, taking their kids to doctors, helping with homework, making ends meet. Some of them are working two and three jobs, and they're doing it every single day, seven days a week. Some of them have no family around here because families live in other states, and they're having to be the babysitter. They're having to be the taxi cab. They're having to be the, the teacher at home. All of these things are having to work full time time, some of them two and three jobs. They're doing a dynamic job, and I don't want any of them to ever think because there's not a dad there at that home that their kids are going to end up messed up because our single moms, their kids are turning out better than the Baptist churches with two parents. I promise you. I talked to Brady at New Vision. He told me how bad it was. 
Statistics abound that reveal the absence of fathers in the home is a detriment to the physical, emotional, and social health of our children. But even more recent studies are revealing not only the fathers, but that a lack of male influence is having adverse effects on the welfare of our children. A recent article entitled, Boys Lack Role Models, Boys Lack Role Models, cite that a decline in male teachers is directly linked to youth violence. A decline in male teachers in our school system is directly linked to youth violence. Did you know 28% of state school teachers are male? 28% of state school teachers are male compared to 32% 10 years ago. We are seeing a decline in male teachers in our classroom. And during that same 10 years, youth crime has soared during that same time, that same decade. Sex attacks, robberies, assaults, and weapons offenses have increased significantly. And psychologists and family groups cite the loss of male role models as being an important factor. Men have got to stand up and be godly men once again. And that's why God said, I look for a man to make up the wall and fill in the gap so that the land would not be destroyed, but I couldn't find anybody. You know, we live in a different world than when I was growing up. When I was in middle school, or we used to call it junior high, and high school, it was a different world than it is today. We live in a culture today where children will ask the question, they're screaming, who am I? Who am I supposed to be? And where am I supposed to go? They are struggling with their identity. Children are trying to find out who they are. And it's imperative It's critical. It's of the utmost importance that men in America stand up and become godly men and say, this is the way, walk you in it. Because our children are trying to find out who they are, where they're supposed to go, and who they're supposed to be. Our children's role models and mentors are personalities on the field of play or on the stage who in turn are struggling defining their own identity. Athletes don't know who they are. Our actors and our musicians, they don't know who they are. They're trying to find their own identity. They're trying to find out who they are and where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to be. And yet they are our role models for our children. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 verse 14. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. It's time that fathers become godly fathers. It's time that men become godly men and fulfill their responsibilities and be an example of godliness in our homes to show our children this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how you live. This is where you go. Now, things change over the years. Uh, And the question is, what does a godly man look like in our culture? 
What does a godly man? I can get up here and scream and holler and shake my fist and kick my leg and 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 spit and say, We need to be godly men. Well God, we need to be godly men. We need more godly men, bless God. We need more. And you'd say, Hallelujah, hallelujah. But what does a godly man look like? What does it look like? What, what does a godly man look like in our culture? You know, there's a wonderful principle I've discovered about serving the Lord for, I'm 61 now, and I've served Him ever, all of my life. But I, there's a wonderful principle that I've discovered about Him is that the Lord is so consistent. Culture changes, but God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what I've learned about him is what a godly man was 2,000 years ago is still, in God's eyes, a godly man today. But when it comes to culture, if you're, if you're trying to make culture define who, what a man should be, boy, you're just going to be changing and shifting all the time. For example, the 1950s and 1960s, I, I know a lot of you wasn't born back then. How many were was not born uh, in the 1950s and 60s? Raise your hand if you were not born in the 1950s and 60s. Look at all these. Uh, how many of you were born in the 50s and 60s? How many of you remember that, can remember that? All right. Well, if you were born in the 50s and 60s, and if you grew up in that time, uh, my, my wife didn't grow up in the 50s. She didn't. She lets everybody know she didn't grow up in the 50s. Uh, she grew up uh, past that. Uh, she's a lot younger than that. But if you grew up in the 50s and the 60s, your image of a man, you remember this, your image of a real man, the world told us the real man was the Marlboro Man. Anybody remember the Marlboro Man? The Marlboro Man. He was depicted as rough, rugged, cigarette limply hanging from your lip, you know, and, then, and a flat top haircut. Anybody remember a flat top haircut? But if you lived to the 70s and 80s and you look like the Marlboro Man, you got out of style. Because culture changed and said a real man in the 70s and 80s no longer has flat top haircut. You have long hair. Long hair. You have bell-bottom pants. Anybody remember bell-bottoms? They're coming back. Hallelujah. I like them. In the 70s and 80s, leisure suits. Anybody remember leisure suits? You were a real man. I even had stacked shoes. Anybody remember those stacked shoes? I had green velour shoes with yellow stacks on the bottom. I, I was Motown all the way, baby. I was something else. It gave me six inches. I felt like, I felt like a real man. Hallelujah to God. Loud colors in the 70s and 80s. But then if you made it to the 90s, man, culture said, no, that's not the man. In the 90s, all of a sudden, the loud colors went out and the leisure suits went out and the, in, the term grunge was introduced. And fashions went back to minimal, the mental, minimalist fashions. Suddenly, tattoos 
became mainstream in the 90s. And body piercings and body modification. That's what I'm into. Body (laughs) modification. Every time I go to Andy's, I'm doing body modification. In the 90s, men, a real man, would wear a t-shirt outside of the home. See, you, you, before that, you used to sleep in t-shirts. You might work in the yard in t-shirts, but you wouldn't go to the store or to church in a t-shirt. But t-shirts became part of a man's wardrobe in the 90s. And stonewashed jeans. I remember, remember, how many of you remember when you, they used to not pre-wash your jeans and you'd get those Levi's and they'd be stuck together and you'd have to pull them on. Anybody remember that? But then if you made it through the 90s, it changed again, the identity of a man. In 2000 now, all of a sudden the men are wearing popped up collars, the collars that come up. Spiked hair that adds three inches of height. Extremely distressed jeans. Diamond studded earrings for men. Been thinking about getting me one of those. I'm about ten years behind, but I, they're cheaper when you're ten years behind. Men bleaching their hair was big in the 2000s. Grungy trucker caps. These ball caps that people wear, and it looked like they, they picked them up at the landfill over here. I mean, these young men went, but that's cool now. That's, that's, the, that's a real man. Cargo shorts. And then men wearing rubber bracelets. See, every 10 years, every decade, the identity of a man changes if you, we allow culture to define what a real man is. Yet what God says is a godly man has remained consistent for years and years and years. So what does a godly man look like in an ungodly world? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter 10. Notice what he says. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout God-fearing man, as was everyone in his house, he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Now, Cornelius is quite a mystery. He only appears in one chapter. That's all we know about him. He appears in one chapter, and we don't see anything else about him. Number one, Cornelius is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. And the Gentiles were very carnal people. But the Bible says that he feared God. Number two, Cornelius had abandoned the religion of Rome. Rome worshipped Caesar, and Rome worshipped multiple gods. And yet Cornelius was worshipping, was praying to one God. So Cornelius had abandoned the the religion of Rome. He only worshipped one God. Cornelius uh, is an oddity. He's different. Cornelius, number three, is a captain in the Roman army. He's a bad boy. He is a man's man. 
Rome had the greatest military army in all the world. They conquered the world. And he's not only just a soldier, he's a captain of such a standard that he has personal attendants waiting on him. And here's the amazing thing. He's the... He's a captain in a conquering and occupying force, yet he is seeking the God of a defeated people. You know what that tells me? He doesn't follow the crowd. Just because everybody else does it, all of his other soldier buddies do it, doesn't mean he does it. He's the conquering, occupying army, and where the others spit on the Jews where the others harass and torment the Jews and don't mind killing the Jews at the first opportunity they had, he is seeking the God of the Jews. He's a totally different entity. He's a God-man. Then the fourth thing, the Bible says that he was a devout man. Acts chapter 10, verse 2, he was a devout, God-fearing man. In the Greek language, there are two words for devout. There's two words. They're the words eulabes, eulabes, which means pious of soul in your inner being. It carries the idea of saintly and reverent. It's talking about your attitude. You're very reverent. You're very saintly. It's your attitude. And then there's the other word, which has the same root, but it's different in meaning. It's eusebes. That's the energy directed by a holy awe of God. It expresses itself in devoted activity. Literally, one of the words, eulabes, expresses an attitude. The other word, eusabes, expresses the action that is the result of the attitude. Okay? One expresses the attitude. One expresses the action, which is the result of the attitude. And this word that says devout, this is the word which expresses the action. This is what it means. Is that Cornelius wasn't just a man who had a reverence for God in his heart. He was a man that his lifestyle showed reverence. His behavior showed reverence. His words, his walk, his talk, the manner in which he handled himself and carried himself and lived showed a reverence for God. He was a devout man. But then the Bible says something else. It says in verse 2, he was a devout, God-fearing man, as everyone in his household. Now, let me just camp there for the next ten minutes, and then we'll go home. A God-fearing man. Being a God-fearing man is critical to being a godly man. When the term fear is mentioned, we normally think of being afraid. We think of being scared. We think of being frightened. But we must understand that the fear or the fear of man and the fear of God are not the same. The fear of man and the fear of God are not the same. To fear man is to stand in alarm, to stand in anxiety, to have anxiety, dread, suspicion, cower before men. This type of fear causes you to run from something. 
The fear of man causes you to hide. It causes you to avoid rejection and confrontation. One of people say to me all the time, boy, I wouldn't have your job because you're having to confront something all the time. And can I tell you, confrontation is not fun. I don't enjoy doing it. I have friends that they just love to confront. Man, in fact, if I could, I'd call them and say, confront this for me. But if I don't confront when I have to confront, then I've given in to the fear of a man. And a lot of you will not confront, and you say, well, I'm just not confrontational. No, you're a man pleaser. Let's get down to where you are afraid of man. And the fear of man will cause you to run. It will cause you to hide. It will cause you to cower. But the fear of man and the fear of God are two different things. The fear of God means to respect. It means to reverence God. It means to give God the glory and the honor and reverence, praise and preeminence which he deserves. So the fear of man means to run from and hide. The fear of God means to bow with reverence, to give honor and preeminence. And the Bible lets us know that the fear of God is the one characteristic and attribute that causes God to respond to man on earth. The fear of God. In fact, it was the fear of God that is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was placed upon Jesus. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 11. Look at Isaiah. Turn over. How many brought your Bibles? Anybody bring your Bibles? Raise your hand if you brought your Bibles. Or if you have it on your phone. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Notice what it says. Out of the stump or root of David or Jesse's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. That's talking about the coming of Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Notice it's a manifestation of the Spirit. When God's Spirit comes upon you, He places within you a fear, a reverence for God. Okay? Here's something else. The Word of God teaches us that a holy fear of God is the key to the treasures of God. This is so important because I deal with people every single day and they'll often say to me, why doesn't God bless me? Why doesn't God bless me? I see Him blessing. I hear these testimonies. I was talking to somebody the other day and God answered their prayer and God gave them that job and God gave them that promotion. Pastor, it doesn't seem like God ever opens any door for me. He doesn't bless me. No favor ever comes my way. And one of the things, if that's where you find yourself, one of the things to do a heart check on is where are you when it comes to reverence and fearing God. Listen to what Isaiah 33 verse 5 and 6 says. It says, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with His justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. 
the treasures and the blessings of God open up when we have a reverence for God. When we give Him preeminence. When we honor Him in glory. And remember what it says about Cornelius? Remember what it says? He feared God and so did his whole household. And who did the angel show up to? Cornelius. And he wasn't even a Jew. He wasn't even born again yet. He hadn't accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior because he didn't even know about Christ. That's why the angel sent to go get Peter so he could tell him the plan of salvation. And yet because of his fear of God, his reverence for God, it got God's attention. He feared God. He was a God-fearing man. The goodness of God abounds toward those who fear Him. The goodness of God. Look at Psalm 31, verse 19. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, who reverence you, who honor you, who give you preeminence in their home and in their life. Angelic protection is provided for those who fear God. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who reverence him, who give him the preeminence, and he delivers them. Fulfillment and deliverance is available to those who have a fear of God. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry, and he saves them. Can I tell you, the Lord has gotten me out of some real messes simply because of His mercy and because I fear God. He's just, he just come through for me when I didn't deserve it because I fear God. The fear of God is critically important. Listen, the fear of God is critically important. Men, listen to me. The fear of God is critically important. Because the Lord never comes where He's not reverenced. He never comes where He's not reverenced. He'll not come to you and help you at work if you don't reverence Him. He doesn't come to your home and help you out. He will not come at the bad times of your life. He only comes where He's reverenced. Let me put it to you this way. The Lord doesn't go where He's tolerated. He goes where He's celebrated. The Lord doesn't go where He's tolerated. He goes where He's celebrated. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And this area, this area of welcoming God and reverence is a toughie for men. It's a tough one. Men, we have in our nature the desire to be in control. We have an independent authoritative theme in our DNA. Men hunt. Men protect. Men provide. Me man. Caveman. Me man. Go fight bear. Me. Me. We decide. We lead. We direct. That's a man. That's just in us. We can handle this. I got this. I don't need any help from nobody. I'm a man. I'm in charge. I got this. Don't worry about it. No. You need help? No, I don't need any help. I got this. That's just a man thing. And at times, men mistakenly think we don't need anybody else. 
I've heard men over the years speak of God in church as something for the weak. For women and for children. I don't need that. I'm a man. I'm a man. I can take care of myself. I don't need that at all. But understand, God only comes where he's reverenced. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. What did the Lord speak? By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. I must be reverenced. I must be honored. I must be given preeminence. I will close with this. Let me close with this. The more we grasp the greatness of God, the greater our capacity to reverence and fear Him will be. The more you and I start to comprehend how great God is, the more we will reverence and fear Him. See, some men don't fear God because they think He's a little God. Let me tell you, He's a big God. And the more you realize how big He is, you can't do anything but reverence Him. Isaiah saw it. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1, it says, Isaiah had a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it goes on to say that he saw these massive angels around the throne. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now listen, they wasn't reciting a script. They wasn't reading off a piece of paper. They were responding to the ever-changing, unfolding brilliance of what they experienced in the throne room of heaven. We sing about the greatness of God. We just sing about it. How great is our God. And I glanced around and some of you just were kind of looking around. One or two of you were yawning. A couple of you wasn't singing. And we just, it, it's just nonchalant to us. But the angels of God that are in the throne of heaven, they are actually seeing the splendor and the grandeur and the brilliance and the enormousness of God. And they're saying, Holy! 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 It's not something they've been told to do. It's something they are responding to. To the point with such a passion that the Bible goes on to say that the doors, the post in the throne room started to shake at the holiness and the grandeur of God. And then they said, Holy! Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. They're standing in the throne room and they're seeing the majesty of God and they're seeing, looking down at the earth and the galaxies and the universe and it so overwhelms them. They say the whole earth 
is full of your glory. The last few days, Amanda and I have spent the night at our son and daughter's house, Devin and Casey's, and they have a couple of acres out in beautiful Las Casas. Any of you live out in Las Casas? Just absolutely beautiful out there. And each night between 9 and 10 p.m., I have slipped out on the back patio in the quiet and looked up into the sky and marveled at the greatness of our God. I don't know if you've noticed, the last few nights there hadn't been a cloud in the sky. And uh, it's been so long since I was out in the country at night, I forgot how brilliant the stars were. I've been living in the city here, and I don't ever look up. I'm ducking for gunshots, and, and uh, so I forgot how brilliant. There's not been a cloud in the sky, and the moon over the last several nights has just, its light has been like the light of the noonday sun. The stars have sparkled with a brilliance like I, it fascinated me. You see, the more we grasp the greatness of God, the greater our capacity to reverence and fear Him. David said it like this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. I tell you, you can go outside and just reverence God. You know, it's almost impossible. <laughs> it's almost impossible to comprehend the vastness of our universe. Beside our sun, we're told that the nearest star is 4.3 light years away. Beside the sun, the nearest star is 4.3 light years away. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, look at it like this. Light travels at the speed of 186,282 miles per second. Not per hour, per second. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second. That is roughly 670 million miles. Our airplanes fly approximately 500 miles an hour. Yet light travels at 670 million miles per hour. Our moon orbits 239,000 miles from Earth. The moon, that big moon I saw last night, it orbits 232,000 miles from Earth. If we traveled by plane, to the moon it would take 19 days to get there but light reaches the moon 
in 1.3 seconds. Remember who said, let there be light? The sun is 93 million miles from the earth. 93 million miles from the earth. If you got on a jumbo jet and traveled to the sun, it would take you 21 years to get there. If you're afraid of flying and would rather drive, it couldn't be done in your lifetime. Yet light travels from the sun to the earth in 8 minutes and 20 seconds. Let's go past the sun to the nearest star. Remember, the nearest star is 4.3 light years away. To reach the nearest star by plane, it would take you 51 billion years. Yet light from that star travels to earth in only 4.3 years. Did you know last night when I looked out in Las Casas up at that brilliant starry sky, the stars we see at night with our naked eye, we are told are 100 to 1,000 light years away. And the scientists also tell us that there are few stars we can see with our naked eye that are 4,000 light years away. Now think about this. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second. And it still takes 4,000 years for that light to reach from that star to earth. Think about that. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second. And it still takes 4,000 years for that light to reach from that star to planet earth. Now here's what's amazing. That means the light of these stars was first released before Moses parted the Red Sea. And it that light, uninterrupted, has traveled a distance of 670 million miles every hour without slowing down for 4,000 years just to reach planet Earth. See, when you start to be able to see just a glimpse of the vastness of the universe, you'll start to get a comprehension of how we need to reference our God. But see, this is just the Milky Way galaxy. This is only the stars in our galaxy. There are billions of stars in our galaxy. And scientists estimate that there are billions of galaxies beyond our galaxy. And each one of those billions of galaxies, they say there are billions of stars. In each one of those billions of galaxies. And David said it this way, Praise the Lord, how good to sing praises to our God. 
how delightful and how fitting the Lord is rebuilding Jerusalem and bringing the exiles back to Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. (laughs) How great is our Lord! His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. And who are we to be flippant when we approach a holy God like that? Stand.